Welcome again to City Life. Saturday evening, could have been anywhere, but you chose to be with us. Thank you for that. We are in a series, we've been in a series for some weeks now called Myth Busting. And uh, just to preface that, with that business meeting that David announced, we, we bust some myths about business meetings. Because you think of a business meeting, you think, oh, this is going to be boring as mess, right? But Pastor Fred shares so much vision, plans for the future, how these numbers tie into what we're planning to do as a church and the good things that God is going to do in 2019 and beyond. And secondly, I think sometimes we think, oh, transparency with finances is like one sheet maybe that you get handed. No, Pastor Fred and the finance team and Elise there in, in Newport News, they do an incredible job. They put together a packet that's probably like 50 to 20 pages long with just details about what we did last year. Again, what our plans and vision are for the years to come. So I would encourage you, uh, don't think, oh, that's business meeting. Write it off as boring. No, we're busting that myth. It's, it's actually a really good time. And like David said, there's an opportunity to come together as a church family and eat, which we love to do in, in any kind of setting, to come together as a church family and eat. And we're going to be doing that after the business meeting to raise funds for our youth to go to camp this summer. So with all that said, you have your Bibles tonight, or maybe you, you have a version app, you're swiping, or if you have neither of those, there's Bibles under your pew, so literally nobody is left out. And uh, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to meet you there in just a minute. But we're in this series, Myth Busting, because you can pay a high price for living according to half-truths and the misconceptions that we could be misled by. And the verse that inspired this whole series as I was reading through the Bible last year, it was Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, in the Amplified Version, where it says, A little leaven, a slight inclination to error, leavens the whole batch. It perverts the concept of faith and misleads the church. So the questions that we've been asking ourselves in light of this verse is, how many of my missteps are because I've been misled by misconceptions? How many of my headaches are because I've been operating according to half-truths? And how many heartaches have I handed out because I'm sharing these half-truths with other people? Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, love should be colorblind. Or, or, or last week, judge not and the implications that would have on us and other people. We talked about those two. You can podcast them. But if this series had a mascot, as we talked about when we launched it, it would be the Bereans in Acts chapter 16 where Paul comes to them. And he shares, and, and Acts 17 says that they were open-minded, enthusiastic, and eager. And then it says the first thing they did after they got the word from Paul is to line it up with Scripture to make sure that it lined up and was true. And I think for us, we would hear that and say, how, I can't compute, how do those two match up? That they were open-minded and eager, and yet they were like, oh, is this even true? But I think it teaches us something important about questioning, especially in our faith. That sometimes it's not about a lack of faith. Sometimes it's about a love for truth. The Bereans understood that, yes, Jesus said that the truth can set you free, but half-truths and little distortions of truth and a little leaven can derail our faith, mislead the church. And I believe what has done so much hurt to the church's impact and influence in this world is the way that we consider the phrases full-time ministry or called to ministry and what that means to a believer. In terms of myth-busting, I think so often in the church we have this idea that, quote, unquote, full-time ministry is done by a, a male, right, in a pulpit or on a platform on the weekend. And then whatever it is they do during the week. Can't tell you how many times people ask me, what do you do, right? And I'm like, you want the short version or the 30-minute version? <laughs> but that's so often what we think of when we think of full-time ministry. It's a man, not a woman, right, on a platform or a pulpit on the weekend in a service. That's ministry. 
And the work that goes towards that is full-time ministry. That's what being called to ministry looks like. So I'm going to spend two weeks on this. Next week, we're going to look at this uh, myth that women shouldn't be in ministry, shouldn't teach, shouldn't have a pulpit. But then this week, I want to, I want to start by asking the question, who in this room is called to full-time ministry? Who in this room is, quote-unquote, called to ministry? The way many would answer that question, I think, has been misinformed based on misconceptions of biblical ministry. So Colossians 3, where we're turning tonight, it's verses 16 through 17 that I want to read. And this passage says, Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Before I go any further, I just want to pray. Lord God, we thank you, God, for that sweet time of worship. But God, we know that we continue in worship through digging into your word. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would lead us into the full truth, that when we lay hold of it and when we walk in it, it truly sets us free. And this truth tonight can truly unleash the church. And God, help us to step out of the boxes we put ourselves in. And God, I pray that you would do just that tonight. God, shatter every half-truth, every misconception, every, every urban legend that we've clung to. God, I pray that your Bible would bring light and clarity in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So when you talk about myths, talk about mythology, there's probably few, if any, more notable than Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, right? And the Trojan War within those books still captures our imagination uh, now. Like 2005, when I was in college, it was Wolfgang Peterson, right? Look at Wayne because he would know. Wolfgang Peterson directed the movie Troy. And I don't know if it's the opening scene. It's one of the first scenes. Brad Pitt, young, at his peak, chiseled Brad Pitt playing Achilles, uh, calls out this warrior from the opposing army. Within about 10 seconds, dispatches of him, and then he's shouting, is there anyone else, right? Is there anyone else? And in that movie, there's multiple instances in this movie, and then when you think about movies where we see moments like this, where there's two giant armies ready for war, standing off against each other, and then the generals on each side decide that instead of having the armies duke it out, they'll just have each side's best fighter compete. And the top soldier on each army fights each other, and the victor determines the victor of the overall battle without any further bloodshed. I hear that, and I think, well, yeah, that's mythology, right? Because no king would really let the fate of their nation be determined by a fight between two soldiers. What, what tens of thousands of soldiers are going to march for days, if not months, to the brink of combat and then decide to give up right after their best soldier is defeated, right? But you look through history, and you look through different military engagements and you realize that in real life there's many instances of what's called single combat. Outsourcing the battle to one warrior from each army. And I was reading stories. There's, there's crazy instances. I think it was in uh, Thailand. There was one of these on elephants. They just went to town with warriors on elephants. But the craziest one I read uh, was not single combat but triple combat. Uh, Rome came to a region, Alba Longa. It's probably where Jessica Alba's from or something. But it had a... That had, it turns out, so I don't know even how they found out, but they had not a pair, not twins, but triplets in this region that were all three incredible warriors. And it just so happened that on the, the Roman army, there were triplets, three of them, that were incredible warriors. I don't know how that conversation went down. They're like, are you serious? 
well, let's have them fight each other to the death and determine, like, what's going to happen with this battle, right? You may never have heard that story, but if you spent any time in church, you don't even have to have spent time in church to hear the story of David and Goliath, right? Single combat between David and Goliath. 2 Samuel 2, just a few pages after that, you see Jehu and Abner, they choose 12 men, 12 men from each side to decide the battle on behalf of the nations. We see that it's sprinkled throughout history and this practice of outsourcing combat to one warrior on behalf of an army and really on behalf of an entire nation. It's wild to think about. But you know what's also common throughout history is religion, worship, and the structure of worship. And maybe you're thinking, how are these related? Right? What are you, you're just rambling, but give me a second. Because every culture in the world that we've encountered in history has one thing in common. They have religion. Matter of fact, according to the ancient history encyclopedia, quote, there is no culture recorded in human history which has not practiced some form of religion. And common and all but universal throughout this history of religion as we study it is religious ritual that ceremonializes personal devotion. And within these rituals, we develop hierarchies, right, religious hierarchies where there's priests or mediums or witch doctors, just point people that we can outsource the work of worship to. They can keep the gods happy for me, and I can just keep living my life, right, just keep it moving. But unlike the cases of, of single combat that are sprinkled throughout history, this version of religion that outsources worship is almost a universal constant in history and in civilizations. Instead of single combat, it's kind of like single worship, <laughs> where we outsource worship. And what does all this tell us? Well, first... It tells us that the human heart was created by God for worship. And we got to realize everybody worships something. If you choose not to worship God, you're going to find something else to worship. If you choose not to serve God, you're going to find something else to serve. I think it was Timothy Keller who, who called our hearts idol factories. Because if we're not worshiping God, we're going to create something else, an idol in our life that we can put on the throne and worship. But you know what else, what else it tells us about our worship is, again, that we are naturally inclined toward outsourcing our spiritual devotion and our religious obligations. It's like our, our natural default as humans. And if we see it throughout history, and if it's in humans, then we should realize we'll see it in the church because guess what? We're all human. And it's found in the church today. Like and commonly within the whole concept of what we would call full-time ministry, where we hire a minister and the congregation pays the clergy to do the quote-unquote ministry. And as a result in the church today, the, the phrase call to ministry would be considered a, a rarefied call to a pulpit or a platform. And when we talk about full-time ministry, so often it seems like a higher calling than whatever the rest of us put in in the public workplace Monday through Friday. It becomes almost like that's varsity and, and, and the rest is JV or even worse. Whenever we define ministry as an elite calling to serve Jesus full-time, the rest of the church will find their place on the bleachers. We produce a system with the outsourcing of religious ministry. And the church becomes the crowd behind Achilles standing back while that one person does the quote-unquote important work. But the implication is that we begin to have this idea that the rest of us, we're not called to ministry. Like we're just killing time Monday through Friday. But it couldn't be further from the truth. Like the, the testimony of my life, the full truth of my life is, is I was uh, on October of 2011, took the vows of ordination. Stepped into vocational ministry. But it was six years before that, in October of 2005, 
where I stepped into full-time ministry because that was the night that I made a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ. The full truth of full-time ministry is that we're all called into full-time ministry. We live on call with the Holy Spirit. And we step into that the moment we step into relationship with Jesus. Because what does this relationship with Jesus look like? Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Not fill some hour on the weekend. No, fill your lives, every bit of it. What's the fruit? And another translation says, whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. This is our call to ministry. And I want to look tonight briefly at two harms that are done by this misconception. But then I want to look at, more importantly, two ways that the truth can set us free and unleash us as the church. But first, the two harms and misconceptions when we treat ministry as this elite calling to, to deal with two of, it deals damage to two of, I would say, more of the important images in Scripture were given for the church. And the first is the priesthood of believers. You know, priests in our Western culture are largely stereotyped in cinema and alike, where the priest character is often uh, kind of within the four walls of the church. Rarely are they the main character. Usually there's the hero or the main character, and when they've had a rough week, they've had a bad day, they, they, they need something, they go to the priest in the four walls of the church, and they, they get a word of encouragement, they get edified, they get life advice, or they deal with their guilt through confession, and then the hero goes back to the front lines, leaving the priest in those four walls of the church to do whatever it is he does. And when we think of priests, we often think of this isolated career or a class of people within religion, but this wasn't God's original plan. When God speaks to his people, the Israelites, as a whole, for the first time in history, at Sinai, in Exodus, what does he say? He says in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, he says, If you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. He says, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you, Moses, must give to the people of Israel. Right? He says, if, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nations. And what do we see in Exodus? They don't make it one step from Sinai without stumbling in this covenant and failing to obey. And for the rest of the Old Testament, we see in their worship that one person would approach God in the Holy of Holies. One priest once a year, would go in on the Day of Atonement, this point person model where he was the head of this hierarchy to go in and do what needed to be done on behalf of the Israelites. But this didn't just have to do with a failing at Sinai. It also had to, come to, it also had to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. Because none of these sacrifices throughout all the Old Testament, I was just talking to Jesse, he's reading Leviticus. He's like, that, that altar was bloody, right? There's a lot of sacrifices going down. All those sacrifices, millions in the Old Testament, never paid the full price of sin. They just pushed the debt back and bought time. For what? Jesus. It says in Hebrews 10, which I always recommend, if you're reading Leviticus, read Hebrews because it explains it so well. In Hebrews 10, it says the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. But then verse 14, one of my favorite script, verses in Scripture says, for by that one offering, Jesus made perfect those who are being made holy. We're all being made holy. We're all being sanctified. But before God, we've been made perfect through justification. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And that same term was stamped on documents to mean paid in full. 
And as we're going to find tonight, the gospel, as we'll see again and again, it gives clarity. It gives greater context to this idea of ministry. Because if you've read Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith so that nobody can boast. See, if religious works were crucial to gaining good standing with God, then there would always be a difference between those doing work in the church and everybody else. But if religious work doesn't earn favor from God in any way, then it should be in no way seen superior to other forms of labor because the veil was torn. Every one of us can come into God's presence, not one time a year, every day, every moment. Everyone has access. It's because of this in the New Testament, we see Peter say in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he says, you are a chosen people. Then he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It points directly to this proclamation we just looked at in in Exodus about this kingdom of priests and how it's no longer about lineage or privilege. We're all called to it. It's available to us. We don't need to outsource our religious obligations to anybody. Because as Paul says, actually, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And yet we, living in this new reality, spoken of by Paul, spoken of by Peter, made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we so often drift back to the default setting of outsourcing ministry, outsourcing religious obligations. And it does damage to this idea of the the priesthood of believers. But the second teaching of the Bible that we can do damage to with this line of thinking is is the body of Christ. Many of us have heard of, but the church preaches the body of Christ. But do we really believe the body of Christ, especially as as leaders? Because let me confess, as, as church leaders, so often we can make leadership the top run of the discipleship ladder when really it's another ladder altogether. Every believer is called to discipleship, to, again, sanctification, to looking more like Christ daily and following him with our life. But that call to leadership, that's a unique, separate calling for for some people. If we truly believe the body of Christ, then guess what? There's heads, there's eyes, there's mouths, there's organs that we don't even see, but they're still essential, and they still do work, and we still need them. You know, for leaders who gift project and try to make other leaders and other pastors and preachers of everybody, I think sometimes we forget that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, Paul says, make it your ambition to what? Lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Everything he's talking about there is ministry. It's the work of ministry. In Ephesians 4, 12, it says that the pastor's job is to create more pastors. The leader's job is to create more leaders. Actually, it doesn't say that. It says in Ephesians 4.12, to equip his people. The pastor's job is to equip God's people for works of service. Other translations say works of ministry. So that who? The body of Christ may be built up. You know, with ministry in the church, you sit under ministry to be equipped to step out into ministry. That phrase, step out, is important because for many, the equipping that gets done for us in the church is so that we can do work outside the church. Because truly, that's where the front lines are. When you see Jesus pray for more workers, he's not praying for more workers for SLT, though God bless everybody in the blue shirt, right? He's not praying for more workers in the temple. No, he's saying, I need more people out here to work the harvest where the lost are, out in the world. Yes, we're equipped for ministry in the church. This gathering, coming together in life groups to sharpen one another, anytime you come together with another believer, that's important and that's valuable. 
but we're equipped for the work of ministry. We're, that's what we're equipped for. When Jesus prays for workers, that's where his focus was. When the Holy Spirit came in power, right, it wasn't, Jesus didn't say in, in Acts 1 that the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power and you will go from the sanctuary to the foyer and then back to the altar again. That was Jerusalem and Judea and working its way outwards to the ends of the earth. The first person we shared this in the Holy Spirit series, filled with the Holy Spirit in Scripture, wasn't a, a priest or a pastor or a preacher. It was a craftsman who worked with his hands, who daily, would just like Jesus did, worked with his hands. And from the start, we see that the Holy Spirit's empowerment is for all of life because all of life is ministry. You begin to go through the Old Testament, right? Daniel gets his own book. Look at some of the people who get their own books in the Bible. Daniel wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a priest. He was a refugee and a government worker who spent his life in a very dark, secular workplace. And yet in 70 years of, of working for this Babylonian government, he sees three revivals be sparked. Again, just working with, he worked hard. He worked above reproach. At one point, they're trying to find any dirt on this guy. They couldn't find any, right? And as he just worked and did his job, he saw three revivals happen. There's a whole book in the Bible named after him. You look at Joseph, saved all of Egypt, preserved the nation of Israel, right? Saved God's people as they came to Egypt. And he was what? He was a trustee in the prison and then served under the administration of Pharaoh. Moses was a, a rancher on the backside of the mountain. He wasn't found doing work in a temple. Nehemiah was a cupbearer and then essentially a, a politician. He wasn't a priest. Esther, when you think about it, was kind of a beauty queen, right? And Yet she was who God calls. These are the people that God uses to make a difference. These are the people used so greatly in Scripture that the Bible names books after them. So my question is, where are you spending your Monday through Friday? Because we serve a sovereign God who has put you there, and you're exactly where God wants you to be so that God can use you. Right? Those are the front lines of ministry. Again, when, when Jesus prayed for more workers, that's where he wanted them. That's where he wants us. You, when you take the Holy Spirit to your workplace, your neighborhood, wherever you go during the week, becomes breeding ground for revival. There's potential for revival because the Holy Spirit's in us. Do we believe that, though? Do we believe it? You know what happens when we regain the full truth about full-time ministries? Well, first, we get over ourselves. And then secondly, as I heard a pastor say once, the salt leaves the salt shaker. But what I mean when we say we get over ourselves. I think sometimes flip on the Hillsong channel or see somebody ministering from a platform, from a pulpit, they're charismatic, right? And you're thinking, I could never be like that person. And then we get down on ourselves, right? We see that as the top of the ladder and following God as if that's the, the top rung. And then we give up ever reaching that goal. But again, that's the poison of this misconception that you too are called to ministry and it may never, ever look like that. You know, when Jesus showed up, spiritual leaders and, and the spiritual elite had raised the bar again and again until it was almost impossible to meet it. To be a priest, you need a pedigree. To be a scribe and a scholar, you need to be smarter than everyone else. To be a Pharisee, you had hoops to jump through to prove your intellect and your discipline. And then I love Jesus shows up, and there's all this protocol. There's this bar in place. He takes it, and he just, he like punts it. <laughs> he doesn't raise it. He gets rid of it altogether. It's one of the many reasons that the Pharisees would look at Jesus and look at his disciples and look down on them. Like, who are these hooligans, right? Who are these people that are, are living like this that wouldn't measure up to, to our standards, to what they had made the top rung of the ladder? But again, 
You look at who God uses throughout the Bible. This isn't anything new. Right? Not only were these people we just looked at in, in, the, in the secular world, as we would call it, but a lot of them were just messed up. Moses had killed somebody. David committed adultery. Abraham was a liar. You just go down the list. There was people that struggled with greed. There's people that struggled with lying, anger, lust, yet God calls them to himself, gives them life, and then sends them back out and uses them in powerful, profound ways. I say that because I think there's so many people in here that still struggle with this idea, I'm not good enough. I don't have it in me. This might shock some of you, but I think it'll comfort the rest of you. You're never going to be good enough. And that's not the goal. We lean into God's goodness and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And when we grasp this idea of ministry, that it's not some elite calling, we're able to get over ourselves. Realize my eloquence isn't going to save anybody anyways. It's the Holy Spirit, right? God just wants our faithfulness. God wants us to step out of what's been holding us back and Maybe get over ourselves is rough, but sometimes as a pastor, you need to get over yourself, right? We need to get over ourselves. And when we do that, what happens? Again, as one pastor once said, the salt leaves the salt shaker. Because I think this is what happens in the church and our culture again and again. We step into justification, right? We pray a prayer at an altar. We have right standing with God. And then we get to standing around. We check that box. And I think sometimes it's the church's blame because we focus so much on getting somebody to an altar and getting them and saved and pray that prayer. And, and then we forget, no, there's a whole process of discipleship and following Jesus that follows. Again, the process of sanctification, looking more like him daily, but also kingdom transformation. We went through the Our Father in the autumn, and it says in the Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we so often pray that we make that a passive prayer, like God's going to do it when it should be an active one. Right? And what is the fruit of this prayer in the life of the disciple? That we become more concerned with God's kingdom coming to earth than we are concerned with getting to heaven. Really, when you think about it, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you shouldn't be concerned with getting to heaven anyways. You have assurance of salvation through the work of the cross. Our concern now should be, hey, let's bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Right? How, uh, what, what is in heaven? Let's bring it to earth. Justice, peace, mercy. How can we work that into our daily lives in the world around us? This is kingdom ministry. See, when we slide into heaven as being our sole focus, things can happen around us on earth, and we just kind of don't have to pay much attention. Injustice, human trafficking, abuse, that's bad, but we don't let it worry us because we're going to heaven. I think sometimes we're so aware of the content of the gospel and the good news, and we forget the scope. That, that it's called, that we're called to bring God's kingdom here to earth, right? We're supposed to bring healing and wholeness to these areas that are broken around us in creation. And that doesn't happen in 90 minutes on a weekend. That happens as each one of us leave the four walls of this church and walk out Colossians 3. You know, I've shared this stat again and again. I'm going I'm to share it again and again to you. all have it memorized. There's 112 interactions in the Gospels. Ten of them happen in the temple. The other 102 happen outside those four walls. I think Jesus was teaching us something important in this ratio, that this is where we're equipped. Right? This is where we come together in a huddle. The vision is laid out. We sharpen one another. But truly, many of the battles that are won happen out there. The front lines of, quote, unquote, ministry is out there. That's what we're equipped for here, according to Ephesians 4.12. We can't forget that God, by his very nature, is ascending God. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus Christ leaves, and what does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit 
into the world. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? Again, sends us out into the world, to the ends of the earth. See, the God doesn't just give the church some mission that he cooked up. No, God lives on mission. God is continually sending, and we get to come alongside him. He asks us to join him. We don't just come to a, a stationary God once a week. We join a sending God that sends us into every moment of our life. Not just on a Saturday, Monday through Friday. We live on call, called and sent into full-time ministry. There's a theologian, uh, Leslie Newbigin, who once wrote that our business is not to promote the mission of the church, but to get out into the world, find out what God is doing in the world, and join forces with him. And what would the result of this look like? Again, we read Colossians 3, and it says, let the message about Christ in all its richness, not fill a service, not fill your weekend, fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. There's a whole lot of people that we run into, I'm sure you've experienced this as you invite them to church, that they're not coming to church. And I think that's why I don't think it's a mistake that in the Gospels, 90% of the interactions of Jesus that are recorded happen outside those walls. We need a whole lot of people that minister when they leave the church. And just to to close with application, I think two reasons we so often struggle with this and and, and fail to do it is is two things. In my life, and just to be honest, I think it's humility and courage. We lack humility and we lack courage. I know that's so often the reason in my life. But again, as the gospel gives context to ministry, the same gospel we share is the gospel that will give us the humility and courage we need. What am I talking about? Well, to be saved by grace As we talked about, it's humbling that all people are equally lost. All people equally need grace. And this makes it impossible to be condescending when presenting the gospel without rejecting the gospel itself. But just as importantly, I speak about humility because I think so often we look at some people and we think that person is unreachable. Or as we talked about last week in Matthew 7 when it talks about pigs and dogs, they think, oh, it's talking about people that are so far gone, so broken, don't even worry about throwing the, the gospel, the pearls to them. Right? We talked about how that wasn't true. But I think sometimes we think, oh, they'd never be Christians. Like they're more lost. But no person is more promising material for saving. Right? We're all lost. Salvation is this undeserved gift that's for anyone and everyone. And when you can come again and again to this realization and the wonder of the reality that I've been saved from brokenness, not by anything I did, but by grace and mercy, that can inspire that vision for others. Because if God could save me, he could save anybody. But the other aspect is courage. Because let's be honest, the the reason we often don't walk Colossians 3 out perfectly in our life is because we fear the approval of man. We want to look respectable, valued, progressive, but the gospel gives us value and shifts our motive. We don't have to work for approval because we have approval through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not man's approval, the approval of God, which means so far more. And if we truly grasp the good news of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit, that only he can draw men to Christ, only God can change hearts, and we don't have to be concerned with how eloquent we are, 
how, how polished we are because no amount of eloquence or polish is truly going to save anybody. It's truly just our faithfulness and then the work of the Holy Spirit that draws all men to Christ. It's God's grace that opens hearts. It's not my, my giftedness. But if I could have the, the worship team come up. Ephesians 6, we didn't go there tonight. But if you've been in church for some time, maybe you've heard where it talks about. We're, we're in a battle daily, a spiritual battle with powers and principalities. And we're not called to say, well, I'm in a battle. I'm going to outsource my, my work to single combat or single worship. We're called to play a role. And we're not talking having the courage of Achilles to step into a situation that's life or death. For most of us, at least. For many of us, it's not going to be that. It's simply the courage to do the simple things, to live as Christ's representative. Because, again, in Colossians 3, it says, whatever you say or do, do it as a representative of Jesus Christ. You know, first, people around you in your life should know that you love Jesus. You're a Christian. You follow him. That's another sermon for another time. But when people know that you follow Jesus, they have a right to decide what Jesus is like by when you show up, how you listen, whether you say what you mean and do what you say, follow through on commitments, display integrity, respond positively to adversity, walk in forgiveness, offer hospitality, give generously. These are the ways that we represent Christ. And so often, practically, I think it's so practical we miss it that that's a ministry to represent Jesus Christ to the people around us every single day, workplace or no workplace. You might be in home or in the streets, in your seat or in the streets. The question we should ask daily, if we truly believe we're walking in ministry daily, on call, is we should wake up every morning asking the Holy Spirit, how do you wanna use me today? Who is it you want me to impact? Who is it you want me to show simple kindness to? Who is it you want me to forgive? Who is it that you want me to simply listen and connect with? Again, it seems so simple, and I think that's why we so often miss the fact that we have ministry daily. That the Holy Spirit, as he fills us, wants to call us to. You know, we opened with the question, who in this room is called to full-time ministry? And I hope we'd all be reminded of, of what Scripture says. That we're part of the body of Christ, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, called out of darkness so that we can point to the one that brought us out of darkness and into the light. But I want to close with two questions. If we could all stand as we're about to go into worship. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? And the second one is what can you do about it? What's the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now? Maybe it is about forgiveness. Maybe it is about your workplace. Maybe it's about nothing we mentioned tonight. Maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting you to, to give your life to Christ for the first time. Whatever it is. As we step into worship, if you need prayer, we've got the birches in the back. Steph and I are up here. We would love to pray for you. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take this word tonight and remind us of the truth of your word. God, that we don't check out when we leave this place. We check in. And God, we live on call with your spirit in us. And God, I pray that we would, as the song says, become more aware of your presence, God become more aware of the opportunities that are in front of us every day to glorify Jesus Christ, to walk out Colossians 3 and be your representative. But God, so much of that is, is as we spend time in your presence, as we spend time in worship. It is where we truly are equipped for ministry. So we step into worship again, reflect on your goodness, reflect on the reasons that we praise you and worship you and live for you. And we sing them now. We worship you.